Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For Backpage, I'm Neil White and this is Between the Lines, a podcast that tells the stories behind great sports writing. This episode features Jonathan Northcroft, football correspondent for the Sunday Times in the UK and also the author of Fearless, a brilliant book telling the story of Leicester City's improbable Premier League title win in 2015. But I wanted to talk to him about his new book, Deadlines and Darts with Delhi, England's Rebirth in Russia and Other Unexpected Tales. It's his day-by-day diary of the summer of 2018, which Jonathan spent in Russia covering the England team at the World Cup. As well as a close-up look at the run to the semi-final, the book also moves around other stories, other teams and players at that tournament. It's also an outsider's look at Russia, or at least the Russia that was on show for the duration of what was a very successful World Cup. And finally, and perhaps of no little interest to listeners of this podcast, this book is a valuable description of the inner workings of a sports writer's life, particularly during a long tournament overseas. Access to athletes, relationships with other writers, the demands of the editorial desk back home, the strains of being away from a young family, the air miles, the road miles, the food, the drink, Lagavulin in Jonathan's case. It's a book anyone interested in sports writing should read. And full disclosure, it's published by Martin and I at Backpage. And it's available now. Deadlines and darts with Delhi. Perfect Christmas present for the football fan in your life. Okay, here's Johnny. So I wanted to start by talking about the, the sort of genesis of the project in your Facebook page. Even if we go before the World Cup, how, how were you treating that page? Like, What purpose did it serve? to you i mean look it started off as as a bit of homework almost given to me by the the sunday times i guess which like a lot of papers has been struggling to get its head around what to do with social media and the, and the new online world and initially we were all encouraged to tweet and you know get onto the the paper's own online platforms and answer reader stuff blah 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 and then we had a meeting about a year before the world cup where we had a sort of new digital team that had done a bit of research and were sort of evangelising the charms of Facebook from a media point of view, just pointing out that Facebook is a much nicer space to allow sort of you know, writing to live and breathe on and particularly the kind of stuff we do, I guess, broadsheet writing that's a bit of longer form that maybe you'd hope would appeal to a kind of specialised audience of people who are interested in that particular subject. And it was just really directing us on to, to, to Facebook if you want to start discussing your articles, your, your stuff, go on to Facebook. And, and I tried it and, and I immediately liked it because, you know, I do Twitter. I was a bit of a latecomer to Twitter, actually. I, I watched colleagues start on Twitter in the 2010 World Cup and it was almost like watching addicts. You know, I could see them, I could see them suddenly getting addicted to this thing. And I just thought, <laughs> I've got too much in my life. I don't want another thing to, to be doing at that particular time. So I kind of left Twitter for two or three years after a lot of journalists did. I, 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 I enjoy Twitter. Twitter's fine. Twitter's okay. But it's, you know, it, it can be a bruising place. It can be a very frustrating place sometimes because you can't explain in a longer form ideas that you've got. Whereas I found on Facebook quite quickly that I was able to post articles, um, get a very, maybe a smaller but 
quite engaged audience coming back to me with sort of quality feedback or points I hadn't really thought of and I started really enjoying the, the interaction there and finding also with things like photos that I could do things um, that I couldn't do perhaps on Twitter so I remember posting something about Mo Salah in, in, in the middle of last season I was just blown away by his movement in a particular game and I was able to you know, post a, a few sort of stills from, from watching it on TV, watching it back on TV, and, and an explanation of the movement I was seeing, and really enjoyed starting to do that kind of stuff. So I think throughout last year, that Facebook page became something that started off as work, but became quite quickly became something that was quite pleasurable uh, and something I looked forward to, to doing. So it was fairly natural for you then when the summer came around to make that somewhere that you were spending quite a lot of time during your World Cup. I did toy with a few other things. I mean, my, my, my worry about the World Cup was boredom. Uh, as a Sunday journalist, you, you face the challenge of only publishing once a week, of um, covering, let's say, England, who, who are a very professionalised media organisation operation now, where... Um, it's not like the old days where there was a bit more kind of open, free access, um, where you knew there'd be a kind of quite rigidly defined plan of press conferences and windows in which you could speak to players. And realistically, on a Sunday paper, there's a danger of, of at a tournament, kind of waiting for that one day in a week where you can you can do something and, and, and make a difference. In the regular season, it's fine. You, you travel around the country, you see club, you see contacts, you do interviews through the week and then produce your live stuff at the end but it doesn't really work like that at tournaments so I thought I might be a bit bored I was looking at just looking at ideas I thought I might start writing on you know a book I thought I might do a podcast I had an idea with a couple of mates um, one's a scout one's uh, one's an agent I thought I might do something in that field but to be honest I didn't have the balls to do it and at the end I thought look I'll just I'll just use that Facebook page that I would I'd be on anyway I'll just start doing a few things on there and the idea was to maybe just talk about what games I was going to and offer a few wee score predictions and, and, and stuff like that. And that, there was never anything that you were discussing with the newspaper? That, that wasn't going to be um, any content that they would be interested in? Oh, no, no. I mean, the, 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 I think from day one there's a very big difference between what I was doing on Facebook or what, what you can do on Facebook and what you do in quite a traditional paper like the, the Sunday Times. In fact, I think as long as you were doing something on Facebook, I mean, the, 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 the kind of instructions we had in that meeting was, were pretty vague, like a lot of the way newspapers treat the online. Just, just do something on Facebook was the message. So as long as I was doing something on Facebook and uh, I wasn't giving away stories that I might want to write for the paper. I mean, obviously, if I... If I did something daft like interviewed Kieran Trippier and then instead of waiting to publish in the Sunday Times, I just started blethering about it on the page, then that would be a problem. But, you know, um, long enough in the tooth not to do stuff like that. And what I found very quickly was it was great because there was a lot of stuff I wanted to say that within a thousand or, you know, 1200 word typical broadsheet newspaper article, I just couldn't say. And also within the conventions of Working for paper, you can't you can't really say a lot more, lot, lot more sort of personal and informal stuff, I guess. Um, and that quickly became the appeal. So this book, it's it's kind of like partly about the the football, what's happening on the pitch. It's partly about England. It's partly about Russia and travel, but a, a big chunk of it is actually about the job. It's a look at the role of a, a sports writer during a World Cup. So can you start just by very briefly outlining what? 
your sort of typical weekly brief from your sports editor would be? Pick a, pick a week from this summer in Russia and, and explain what your output would have to be. Well, I, I mean, at a tournament, particularly when you're the correspondent, so that means your job is to cover the main country, i.e. England, if you're writing for the national edition of Sunday Times, then that is your major responsibility. Everything's defined by when exactly England are playing. If it's a Saturday game, like it was for the quarterfinal match against Sweden, then actually people make a lot more room for live coverage and you will be focused around that uh, with the complication that you also have to try and provide feature content and I write about this in the book you that you actually end up having to write dummy articles you write a win and a lose scenario piece and and you know if the team wins the game then you slot in this this pre-written thing that makes it look as if you're really clever that you've you've been able to conjure 1500 words at the drop of a hat on uh, the consequences of winning same with same with losing but if it's not a Saturday game and, and that you know, that's a, that's a Sunday paper hitting the jackpot. And then you're looking at when it comes in the cycle. If it's, it's, it's almost like there's a point in the week where you stop previewing, uh, you stop, so you stop reviewing and you begin previewing. So if a game's a Friday night, then fine, you're still kind of looking back at what's happened rather than massively looking forward. But if it's a Thursday, you're probably looking forward to the, the, the next game. So that's that. That that's the nuts and bolts. That's the kind of that's the, that's the meat and veg of of the job. But then, of course, you, you've got to on a broadsheet paper provide something different. You've got to provide insight. You've got to provide something outside that kind of diary coverage. And that's the challenge at a tournament. So I wouldn't say there's anything clearly defined as a template. It's more up to you as a correspondent to come up with the ideas for that particular week in that particular time that are going to enlighten people. So. For example, um, after England's first game against Tunisia, which we were then going into a match against Panama, which I think was on the Tuesday, the Monday or the Tuesday. So you really, it's a preview job and you've got to provide this thing that's different as a broadsheet paper. I chose to look at the set pieces. I'd noticed, it actually just came from noticing the quality of Kieran Trippier's corner kicks and thinking, wow, he's just landing that on the, on the head of either Harry Maguire or John Stones. You know, like... Five times out of six, that's almost unprecedented when you watch top top football. And I started, I put that together also with the fact they were using Alan Russell, the striker coach, and, and his role was being misunderstood, actually. It wasn't to teach Harry Kane how to shoot, it was more to teach or to rehearse with forwards the right movements and techniques and stuff. So he was having a big input into the set pieces. And I got some data and, and put together that as my big read, you know, the, the, the set piece work and so on. That's just an example. I mean, it, it, it's funny it's, it's funny you ask that because it's one of those kind of things people ask in the pub what you do all week. And it, it, it just, it's the news, it kind of changes. But I would say the template is, is the live stuff or, or the matches and nuts and bolts. But the, the kind of, the sprinkling, the flavour, the thing that you're supposed to provide that's different are the feature ideas. And at a tournament, they're very movable. But you know as a correspondent that, by the end of the week, you're going to have to have a big read on the main subject, which is England, that's different to anything the daily newspapers have been writing about. And that becomes different. I'll just very briefly, the other thing to throw in would be there are set-piece interviews that take place sort of fairly controlled by the, the media team. There's usually one player per Sunday newspapers every week. Uh, the FA were pretty good at, in Russia. They, they chose quite well. They were giving us players that were quite sort of relevant to a particular thing that was happening at the time. But 
as a Sunday Times, we try not to rely too heavily on that because if you rely too heavily heavily on that to define your coverage, then of course you're just going to have the same coverage as as everybody else. So we of course we use that, but try and make that the secondary read to to the main sort of feature thing that I'm talking about. You mentioned there the the role between you guys, the the media, and the the FA, and then obviously as well the sort of third point in the triangle is the England team and the staff. So. If we start with the players, that's like a that's a young team, and I, I was just wondering going into the tournament where there were any maybe relationships for you that were stronger than with the other guys. Did you did you have any particular contacts with any of the England squad before that tournament? Yeah, I mean, you you end up having relationships, I guess, with the guys that you've you've interviewed, and when you do a broadsheet interview, you are getting to sit down, even in this day and age with access is getting shorter but even now you are still getting to sit down with someone for at least half an hour if not a bit longer and get to know them a little bit so I guess the guys I knew a little bit better were the ones I'd done that with which maybe be Raheem Sterling um, Harry Maguire Jordan Henderson those sort of types of lads Kyle Walker and there's the guys you see you know covering their clubs and mix zones and stuff but it's you're, you're right to pick up on the fact that they're a younger group it wasn't like covering England before where there were guys like Stevie Gerrard and Wayne Rooney who you know I'd, I'd interviewed four or five times and I'd had long-standing relationships with them I'd, I'd, I'd seen them at club level go through Champions League campaigns seeing them in the mix zone every week you know Older players starting to get to know them. I wouldn't say socially. I'm not going to pretend going out for drinks with them, but you know, seeing them at dinners and and different events and and getting more of a sense of them. There was nobody like that in the squad this time. In fact, that I guess the, the the only person I'd ever really spent any sort of social time with was was Gareth Southgate himself. So it was a slightly different vibe, but that was a very refreshing thing as well. Um, it was it was it was different for for all of us. And I think it was different for the players, and, and I think there was a there was a nice open mindedness on both sides that that helped the the media side of things be so um, well sort of touchy feely, I guess. Touchy feel is a phrase that comes up time and again in the book, and I wonder how much of that comes from um, Gareth Southgate. S- Southgate and the the approach that the FA has to the coverage of the team, it all seems to mesh, and I just wonder how much of that emanates from the personality of Southgate. Everything flows from 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 Gareth. My history with Gareth would be that he, Gareth was a Sunday Times columnist, a very good friend of of David Walsh, my chief sports writer. David wrote his brilliant autobiography, or his part autobiography, because this is typical of Gareth as a person. Towards the end of Gareth's playing career, and bearing in mind it was quite a big media property because he'd missed the penalty in '96, and he'd um, he'd had sort of 57 England caps been involved in some some sort of fairly big clubs so it was a book that would, was quite sellable and we're talking about the era when player autobiographies commanded quite big fees generally through serialization rights in the papers so when gareth was offered the chance to do an autobiography at that time and two reasons made, made him do it first of all he was a bit too modest to think he was worth a book by himself secondly his best mate's a guy called andy woodman who he was a, a young player with at crystal palace and Andy had a decent playing career, but nothing like Gareth, you know, lower league, goalkeeper, blah, blah, blah. And Gareth, Gareth said, well, I'll do the book as long as my friend can do it too. And, and he can benefit because he was, frankly, in much more need of, of, of the, the kind of royalties than, than Gareth was. I've digressed, but that, that kind of maybe that just shows the kind of character he is. And David did that book. And I got to know Gareth through David, through him doing the column. 
for the paper and he did a couple of Sunday Times events just those little things that you, you, you see he was, he was you know uh, he, he was just really nice to my missus I can't put it any more spectacularly than that but you know you bring your partner along to something they have to sit next to a famous person and famous person turns out to be really nice and and you, you really appreciate that I'd spent a bit of time with Gareth in South Africa because he was working for ITV writing for us so I can say from personal experience that He's a very open-minded person. He's a very measured person. He's a he's a kind of mature person who has take, took a very different view of the media to any of his predecessors. Having worked in the media as well, maybe understood us a little bit better, but just wasn't as worried about negative coverage. Was more mature about seeing negative coverage as a consequence of whether you're winning or losing. And actually, if you can get the results right, then that's that's what you worry about. Was also clever enough to have been through it as a player and realised the pressure that that, that that players can feel because of coverage when it goes wrong. You know, Gareth was at was at ninety eight when you know the effigies of, of Beckham being burnt afterwards when when they returned home because of the coverage he got for missing the penalty. And and Gareth had seen all that from the inside the the pressure that, that, that players can feel, particularly England players. And so he wasn't suspicious of the media, but he also had a desire to use the media to England's advantage, I guess, rather than as a potential negative. So from the start, he was open to a different way of operating, throwing the doors open. And that did mesh, you're right, Neil, with a new kind of desire within the FA media department to do things differently. So a couple of guys, Andy Walker and Greg Demetriou, Rob Sullivan, had this long-standing idea to have what they call a Super Bowl press conference at the outset of a tournament. Before a Super Bowl, every, every player gets in a great big gym hall and it's open access. Journalists have, have, have an hour to go around speaking to anyone they want. And they wanted to do this with England. They used to joke about it. It was a bit of a pipe dream, really. You know, that'll never happen. But when Gareth arrived, suddenly all those ideas were on the agenda. Suddenly there was a chance to do this sort of stuff. And, and Gareth gave the green light to a lot of it. The, the media centre in Rapino, which was, you know, the pool tables, the, the dartboard, the, the, the bowling alley, um, again, it's just impossible, and it's nothing against Roy, who, who I really liked as a bloke, but it's just impossible to imagine Roy going for that as a manager or previous managers going for it, whereas Gareth, the kind of person that empowers people to run their departments, is open-minded. He just said to the guys in the media department, yeah, if you think that's a good idea, I trust you, you go and do it. Um, so there was a great coming together of stuff. And the book's called Deadlines and Darts with Delhi. You mentioned the dart board. So that was, that was one of these innovations that the FA media team sort of got past the manager. Uh, can you tell us how it worked and how you got on? Yeah, well, okay. Um, I mean, first of all, first of all, the, the, the dart board itself, the darts competition is actually a bit of an in-joke between the media and the, media, the FA media department. Because people might remember you in 2016 when we found out that England players were playing darts. Harmless detail. And for some bizarre reason, and it still hasn't been addressed, I demand someone interviews him to, to properly address this issue, but Joe Hart, as one of the leaders of the pack, took it upon himself to make this great big mystery of what was happening in the players' darts competition. 
and it quickly turned from being a bit of a joke to being something a bit antagonistic and nasty and you know Joe kind of led it but it, it just fostered suspicion between players journalists asking how did you get on with the darts and players kind of snapping back and it was just it was just indicative of the way press relations used to go so it actually became a joke between Charlie Sale of, of the of the mail, the diarist, and the media guys at the FA. Charlie used to write about it all the time. So when they decided to be all touchy-feely in Russia, um, one of the first thoughts they had was, let's have a darts competition and have the media involved because that, that will point to how different we are to 2016. That was the genesis of it. We couldn't quite believe it when they, they said that's what they were going to do. But anyway, it, it started... Uh, I played on day three, so that was basically because day three was a Saturday, which is when Sunday papers were going up to Rapino to interview, I think it was Kyle Walker, and interview Gareth, and they wanted a, a, a volunteer to play darts. We didn't know who the opponents were going to be. I put my hand up straight away because I am a little bit of a amateur darts player. I used to play at my cricket club in Liverpool. I, what would I say? I would say I'm a mercurial darts talent. Um, I'm <laughs> Capable of, capable of the odd good score, but but generally mediocre. But I, you know, wrecking myself. And I, I said, yeah, I'll play straight away. And I remember getting the text through saying, oh, you're going to play Deli Ali, and thinking, well, yeah, Deli Ali's obviously one of those kids that was a great sportsman, but he won't know anything about darts. This will be fairly straightforward. I I got there quite early. I had a few darts through. Had a few practices. My big mistake was probably throwing 134 in practice. So this was a three-dart competition, high score. And now 134 is way beyond my capabilities. But I, 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 nailed, I nailed it and I just thought, well, this is quite obviously going to be my day. At this point, the press hadn't won a single game against the, the players and I thought I'd be the first one. Delhi turned up and then suddenly all these cameras were on me. Um, Sky were there, BBC were there, there were microphones photographers they all wanted to film the darts competition and i, I yeah the, the bottle just completely crashed uh, it suddenly became a bit of a big deal delhi was a lovely fella really nice lad i uh, i won the toss he went first didn't really seem to have much idea of, of what he was doing i mean he was kind of like throwing at the middle of the board and uh through 54 which left me with a mountain to climb because I was thinking the score of about 30 was going to do it. And I've just never felt, I've never felt a feeling like it. I, I, my, my, my throwing arm just suddenly felt like it was made of, made of stone or something like that. I could, I, I, I got an attack of the nerves and, and ended up throwing a, a pathetic three. And then I think I threw a pathetic one and then I managed to nail a 20 and, uh, and that was it. My game was over. My, my chance was gone. But I have to say, it gave me an insight into how pressure works. How you know something? I, I'm I'm I'd like to say I am a better darts player than Deli Ali. I'm sure I am. I'm clinging to that. But what I can't handle is pressure, and Deli Ali does that. Handles pressure for a living. So it was a it was a an experience, and it was something. Yeah, of course, you want to tell everyone. I've just played darts with Deli Ali. So that's where day four, I think, came from. And you don't always have to get into the details of what happened when you played darts with Deli Ali, of course. Um, there's, I, I mean, I want to talk a little, a little bit about how you break it down because you make the point about pressure. And I think it's a good example of what you often do in these entries in the, in the book, which is that you give us the snapshot and then you give us your take. And you take and you're taking what happened. Yeah, I know it's, I know it's fun and it was a fantastic idea from the FA team to put on that tournament. But it is interesting that this is a guy who basically won't even see those cameras. That's just his life. 
Yeah, all, all he knows is that this is this is something that he has to do. It's relatively athletic, and I'm sure I'm sure he had a very free arm, you know, regardless of of the kind of experience he had in aiming the darts. Whereas for you, it's suddenly it, it's even even you know a veteran of um, Sunday Supplement on Sky TV isn't isn't quite used to having to perform. Not at all. I mean, I, and I'm thinking. I'm thinking things like just hit the board. I'm thinking, have I got a sweat patch under my arm? You know, like I, I am not in the moment as a sportsman at all because that is not my my scene. Whereas, as you say, there wouldn't have been the slightest worry for Delhi. In fact, in terms of the high pressure things Delhi had done that week, that would be number one hundred ninety seven. I mean, it's funny as, as as football writers, you do actually. You do actually live under pressure because you have to hit deadlines. But apart from that, I wish, I wish I could export that into any other sphere of my life because I can't. Whereas clearly a professional athlete like Deli Ali can export that into, into anything because he's probably made differently. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's another wonderful section in the book, another great entry in the book, where you are breaking down the penalty shootout, England's penalty shootout, and the perfect technique, the sort of replication of this technique that these guys have practiced in striking the football, which seems like the most fundamental element of their skill set. But to do that when the stakes are everything and the audience is everyone, and yet they somehow come up with that perfect connection and you mentioned being in the moment. They must just have this ability to zone out completely everything that's happening around them, and they all do it. it it's unbelievable. I don't think we talk about technique enough for a start in sports reporting in this country, perhaps. Secondly, I don't think we appreciate it enough as supporters in our culture. That entry was maybe... I was in a privileged position because... I'm at the game, and I'm not only at the game. The press seats in, in the Spartak Moscow Stadium were quite low down, quite near the pitch, and the, the, the penalty shootout was happening at our kind of side of the ground. So we're kind of, if you can imagine, we're on the centre circle, low down to the left of the centre circle, and the penalty shootout is taking place in, in the goal at that end. So we're, we're, we're really nice and close to the action. And it was just, the thing I... You always come away from a game with those one or two things that, that you can't stop thinking about. And I just couldn't stop thinking about the sound that I'd heard when, when these players were hitting the ball, particularly 
Trippier and, and Marcus Rashford and Harry Kane, the sound of their foot striking the football was like no sound I've ever heard myself make. And I'm, you know, I'm 47, I'm still playing five-a-sides. Play, so I've played a lot of football in my life, mediocrely, but I've not heard anyone I've played with make anything remotely like this, this beautiful kind of percussive, pure sound of, 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 of foot-striking ball. And the speed, the, the, the ball flying in the net, the, the perfection of the angles they were hitting in a penalty shootout. Harry Kane had already taken a penalty in, in the game. It just blew my mind. It really blew my mind. Even yeah, even even just even just seeing the the, the, the run up under the pressure and and how that was executed as something rehearsed and not something completely in the moment from the player. Put the ball down, head down, walk back, run up, perfect. And that really got me thinking about technique and 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 how a lot of sport, if not all of sport, it's that old saying: grace under pressure. It boils down to executing something that maybe we can all do to a certain point but none of us almost none of us can do it under the severest pressure and that's because you know we can do it once in a thousand and technique means doing it pretty much 999 times in a thousand and it, it made me think about other sports you know I'm a cricket fan if anyone's ever been to a test match live and seen someone I don't know, hit a cover drive, it's just like unlike any cricket you'll have ever seen in your life. It's almost like the bat hasn't touched the ball. It's almost like someone's just swept the bat through the air and the next thing you know, there's a ball thudding into the, the sightboards. And, and it's, it's a purity of technique. And I, I don't know, I think as, 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 as I watch more sport and as my career you know, wears on, I kind of find myself getting more interested in stuff like that. Those little details... Because they they do they really do fascinate me, and I wish I wish I could live one day in let's say Marcus Rashford's shoes and strike a ball like I saw him strike in Moscow just once. I'd love to know what that feels like. It'd be amazing. You get England just about dead right during this story, especially when we think back and you know you're writing it live. You know these these were entries that you were writing for your Facebook page day to day to day. You never seem too sold on their wins. You don't go overboard when they lose. And it seems to me that you see the potential for development, but only if they, they follow a certain path. And when you, when you read the book and you're reminded of what else was happening in that World Cup and the other games, the other big games, it seems like a World Cup of really fine margins. And I wonder, looking back now, do you think it was one that England could have won? No, I don't think they could have won it because I do think there was a, there was a ceiling for that England team. And they, they pretty much banged their heads against it. Look, I think if you're if you're listing the best teams at that tournament, I'm not sure England would even be in the top five. It was just the the, the, the draw was fairly benign in terms of it splitting into two halves. But specifically, had of course they could have won that Croatia game, but I just can't see any circumstance where they'd have beaten France or Belgium. I think Belgium proved themselves twice to be better than England. And I think that France team were, were a slight notch up again. And I was always conscious. We were talking about this great young England side and, and, and this fresh feel. And of course, that, that was all true. But you had to look at France with Kylian Mbappe, you know, younger than Marcus Rashford, but absolutely a different level at this point in his career. And you had to look at the talent of the Belgians and think you know there is a context to this there is a context to what England are doing they're doing very well but you cannot get too carried away I think getting to the semi-finals and and finishing fourth was I wouldn't have a shred of criticism from the point of view that England could have done more 
I think I think that was the absolute limit of what they what they deserved to achieve. Of course, they could have won that game against Croatia. I wouldn't. I don't think they'd have deserved to win it, but they could have done it specifically because they were twenty two minutes from from doing so. You know, if if, if the ball breaks differently, you, you you can pull it off. But I don't think they'd have got closer to France in the final than than Croatia did, and Croatia were well beaten. The the journey that they took you on it, at times you seem stretched pretty thin by the tra- travel and the lack of sleep. Could, if, if, for somebody who hasn't read the book yet, could you maybe talk us through the mechanics of a particularly demanding stretch that, that you can recall? I think it's, it started to get really blurry round about the, the trip to Volgograd. So that's the first game, isn't it, against Tunisia. We've turned up in Russia, early morning flights to get out there to start with. So you start the week a little bit sleep-deprived. Then, then you start... Of, you're in a new checking your hotels and new surroundings. Maybe second night is not such great sleep either. You're also confronted by being quite near the Arctic Circle. So at that point, we were almost in midsummer in St. Petersburg, and midsummer night in St. Petersburg is is pretty much you know light all the way through. So then it's a bit sleeping's a bit weird to start with, and then about around about day three. Day four, we end up having to go to Volgograd. And this was the first of what became many early starts at the old residence hotel and spa in Rapino, which involved sort of 3.45 a.m. alarm call, waking up in bright sunlight at 3.45, going downstairs to get our pathetic wee breakfast bags, which, you know, had a kind of old croissant and a bit of yoghurt in them, kind of wondering whether I have breakfast at 3.45 or, or not. Uh, getting on a bus, don't going to going to St. Petersburg Airport, flying at 7, going to Moscow Airport, off again, another change of planes, on another flight, and arriving in Volgograd at about, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And actually, you know, I can't complain because the daily guys had it a lot worse than me. I was, you know, I remember that particular day, I was able to go back to the hotel which was just bizarre hunting lodge in the... I mean, Volgograd's an odd place, but this it had this kind of like hunting lodge, but it was a hunting lodge in an, in an industrial estate with kind of like, you know, car parks and stuff around it and uh, a swimming pool full of nouveau riche Russians and collagen-implanted ladies and stuff. It was a very odd place. At least I was able to go and chill at the hotel, but the Daily Lads had to step straight off those that flight and, and go straight to the, the uh, stadium for a press conference. And then... That particular night, I remember it was Germany-Mexico that day, so I think I had a half an hour's kip. Watched Germany-Mexico, went out to meet a couple of my colleagues for dinner because there was another big game on. Could have been Spain that evening. And then I did a podcast for The Times at midnight outside the restaurant. And I remember walking up and down. Volker had a real, really bad flies problem at that time, being nipped by the flies and speaking to Natalie Sawyer on the phone. One of those kind of like weird out of body experiences at midnight in Volgograd. And then getting home and then next next day's match day, which is just crazy from start to finish, from preparation, from hitting the deadline, from the mix zone, and then getting on another flight late that night to, to fly back to Rapino and then starting all over again. I remember that first, that was, I think I think we all got into it by the end. I think we, we you know, we were sleep deprived, but you kind of got used to it. But I remember that first, end of that first week being just like, I don't know if you've ever go cycling or running and it's that first hill that you come to. It was, it was pretty brutal. It doesn't sound like fun when you're describing that part of it. Um, I know you had fun and we'll get to the Lagavulin 
this was a, this is a special World Cup, and and I think World Cups are special anyway. And the bits that I really enjoyed were reading the entries where you kind of contextualize what we're seeing by looking back at other tournaments because these are these are these are landmarks for us football fans every four years. And it made me think of all the tournaments that I've kind of watched because you mentioned most of them since I was a kid. And it's great that we still, even even when we're meant to, <laughs> we're meant to know everything that's happening everywhere in football now because we can, you know, we've got access to all these games. But it's still possible to fall for players during a tournament, and it, it seems clear that you fall for Yerry Mina in particular during this World Cup. What did what did you like about watching him? And can you also reassure Everton fans that it'll be worth the wait? I am wondering whether it's going to be like one of those very ill-fated holiday romances, you know, the summer that I fell for Yerry Mina and then regretted it ever since, because he hasn't done much since to um, to justify that. It was partly that game I talked about, actually, the England-Columbia game at Spartak Stadium, seeing it live and having that brilliant pitch position, because Columbia had this wonderful old-school and you talk about previous tournaments, Neil, so you'll remember how Uruguay approached the, the task of getting a nil-nil draw with Scotland in 1986. Violently, as I recall. With, yeah, with enthusiastic violence or, or violent enthusiasm or whatever. And, and, and they were effective, of course, at doing so, despite being down to 10 men after about five minutes. Colombia had this wonderful old-school South American sort of two-fingers-up style about them. And one of the things I love about tournaments is... In this age where, you know, we all love, love the Champions League, we love the Premier League, etc., etc., you get a kind of, you get, you get teams all starting to play the same style at club level because you get the same mix of, same multinational mix of players in, in, in teams. You get a multinational coach. I think the, the difference, there's no longer a huge difference, let's say, between the English teams in Europe and then the foreign teams they're playing against than they used to be. So all that kind of stuff. But when you get to a tournament, you still get those great contrasts, those regional contrasts and styles. And you still get a particular South American way of going about defending and tackling. And Yeri Mina, for, I'd, what, I'd, I'd appreciated him on TV in Colombia's group games. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of sat up and thought, this boy's good. And in fact, I remembered him signing for Barcelona in the January, not really knowing who he was, but finding out about him and thinking that that kid's interesting that's an interesting path he's already taken and 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 seeing him in the flesh in that game he was colossal I mean just absolutely physically colossal colossal in challenges dominant you could you, you could hear him barking at the the other Colombian players you could see him leading at the age of what 21 or whatever alongside a I love Davinson Sanchez as well really rate him alongside Sanchez but actually dominating the whole scene Watching his aerial ability, this was the first game where England's set pieces didn't actually work, and a lot of it was because this fellow was just—he'd made it his task just to get his head on everything. And I, yeah. I guess one of the things I sort of mentioned earlier that you start to watch football in a particular way the, the older you get, and, and one of the things I do look for is, is personality and character and decision making on the pitch. And he had the lot. He had the full package. Now, since the tournament, he's had that odd summer where he nearly moved to United, then he didn't. Was his agent, you know, a problem or not? We don't quite know. 
he went to Everton and, and then he hasn't really played. And you wonder about a guy that forces away out of Barcelona to start with, you know, what's wrong there. So I have questions about him. Um, and I also wonder whether he was just someone having a really hot patch and, and someone that was inspired playing for his, for his country. But the player I saw in that game, if he can, if he can repeat that, then he will be exactly the type of player that Everton fans will love because they it's a great fan base they do love character they do love power and strength and 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 by the way he can play as well from what I from what I saw he can play as well but most of all just a born a born leader a, a dominant figure at a very young age okay Jonathan the credits are rolling on your 2018 World Cup story here so what are the moments that make your Russian montage, like on the pitch, personally, professionally, what what are the kind of images that you kind of take away from this summer in the book? Wow, great question. Well, let's let's start on the pitch, and I can't get out of my mind the the beauty of 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 of, of that French team and seeing them celebrate. My last sort of on pitch image at the World Cup would be the Luzhniki Stadium filled with golden ticker tape, the rain lashing down, and Paul Pogba sliding on his knees through this this kind of field of of, of ticker tape with, with Matuidi, with Griezmann dancing and, and um, Hugo Lloris and Giroud having a laugh with each other because Lloris has just made a complete howler, but nobody's going to remember it because he's become a world champion. I remember that. We've talked about the penalty shootout, which, is a, which will be a big memory. Uh, the tension of the England-Sweden game. Now, it wasn't a tension that was felt on the pitch, but it was a tension that was felt in the press box by us Sunday guys because it was, it was our one live report of the tournament and it was a big one. I remember uh, Rapino itself, which is a very odd little place, a kind of oligarch's playground sort of 20 miles up the coast from St. Petersburg. I will remember St. Petersburg vividly and I really want to go back there, um, particularly... Rubensteiner, which is a street of great street of bars, just it's a very young place, but full of full of great places. That's where I think in in the book I write about having a cocktail which came in a a bottle wrapped in a in in a kind of brown homemade paper with with twigs and bark stuck to it, and um, sort of you know berries from the forest sort of stuck in this cocktail. Don't know what was in it, but it was very good. Um, a nice prelude to the to the evening. I'll remember the Yandex taxi app, which is like Uber but better for Russians, and that was a constant friend. I remember Google Translate, which was again a good friend because it was probably the first. Somebody said actually it was a, it was the World Cup of Google Translate. It was the first <laughs> time I've been abroad that on mass that actually language wasn't so much of a problem because you just got this app out and and this kind of pigeon way of communicating took shape. I remember Messi's goal, you know, back to the pitch, the the, 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 the touch from his thigh and, and, and the finish. Against Nigeria. I mean, the, 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 you know, the guy is that was one of the best strikes I've ever seen. And, and I think I write about it. The previous World Cup, he played the best pass I've ever seen in the flesh. So, you know, he's, he's got something, that lad. He's okay. He's, that's one of the revelations in the book. Messi's quite good. You know, buy it for more insight like that. There's a lot of going for a run with Neil Ashton and Mark, Matt Dickinson down by the river in Moscow, making a big mistake, biting off more than I could chew because those lads are super fit. And uh, after about 10 miles, it became clear to me that they weren't turning back. And last time I'd run more than five miles was about three years previously. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but it was a great day. Lots of memories, you know, um, and it 
just an overall feeling that I had carried throughout the whole tournament that something that I thought was going to be a chore turned into an absolute pleasure. And that's one of the best feelings in the world, isn't it? Some, that thing you've dreaded becomes a thing of joy. And, and I really will look back fondly on Russia, really, really happily. Um, and I'm going to just try not to get my hopes up too high for other tournaments to be the same because I think you know, it's the best tournament I've seen in 20 years. So low of averages say I might have to wait a little bit to see a report on as good a tournament again. So that was Neil's conversation with Jonathan Northcroft about his book Deadlines and Darts with Delhi, available in all good bookshops, fits neatly inside a Christmas stocking. Go to backpagepress.co.uk to find out more about the book and read the exclusive extracts. Finally, if you enjoyed this chat, please subscribe to Between the Lines, search for Between the Lines on your podcast app and look for the green logo. When you do so, you'll find over 20 episodes sitting waiting for you, including conversations with leading sports writers such as Henry Winter, David Winner, Simon Cooper, Rory Smith, and many more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.